That's Job 38, starting at verse 1, and we'll read till verse 24. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea in with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it may take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory? and that you may discern the path to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is disturbed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job as much as he had before, 
Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He, also, he had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this Job lived for 140 years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons and four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. That was the note that we ended on last week. That was towards the end of Job's speech from chapter 31, which is where we left off at the end of last week. Job was a man, if you remember, who had faced the worst possible kind of suffering. He had lost his livelihood, his possessions, his family, his health. We, the readers, have been moved to lament with him and his suffering as we have read through this book together over the course of the last couple of weeks. Many of us can resonate with it firsthand, of course. And in addition to all of it, Job has been tormented about the questions that it has raised about God and about how God runs the universe through his suffering. What's happened to him just doesn't seem to be fair, and it doesn't seem like God is fair. Most of the book has involved him going sort of back and forth with his friends in discussion. Their way of solving the problem is simply to assert that God must be punishing Job for sin of some kind in his life. That's why he's suffering. But we, the readers, know that their explanation is too simplistic. That isn't why Job has been suffering, because we had an insight into it at the start of the book, if you remember. And Job also knows that his friends must be wrong, because he's convinced of his own innocence throughout all of this. But the problem is that if he isn't being punished for any sin or wrongdoing in his life by God, well, what is God up to? What possible reason could there be for allowing this awful stuff to happen in his life? And as Job lamented last week, humans can't find the answers to those sorts of questions on their own. We lack the wisdom necessary, and it's impossible to find it. But God does have the answers. So does he owe Job an explanation for everything that's happened? That's what the book has been boiling down to. Ought he to step in on the scene and justify himself, possibly even issue an apology of some kind to Job? in front of his friends to vindicate him. We live in a culture that's very keen on leaders in positions of power being forced to give an account for their actions, don't we? Partygate and Beergate and so on have shown that we expect our leaders to be hauled into the dock if there is even a whiff of apparent injustice on their part. And I think we live in a culture where we think of that about God as well. We sort of think of God as being about at the same level as our politicians, and he ought to be put into the dock if there are questions begging. 
I was once helping out at the University Christian Union Mission Week and we were handing out flyers around the campus for an event that we had titled, Does God Have the Right to Tell You What to Do or Not? And most people did uh, what you do when someone's handing out a flyer, which is you keep your eyes focused forward, you grab the flyer and you don't engage with them. But several people did, and I was quite surprised by this. And they vehemently said, no, God does not have the right to tell me what to do. And we got into discussion and so on. Far more people than I was expecting. Is there, if there is a God out there, he doesn't stand in authority over me. If anything, I expect him to answer me and my standards of right and wrong. That's the mood of our culture today, I think, in the wider world. And this really gets to the heart of what the book of Job is all about. Is Job allowed to demand an answer from God or not? Given that his friends are wrong and he is suffering innocently, we know that to be true. Does God need to come and explain himself? Perhaps this is a question that you yourselves have been wrestling with at some point during this series or at another time. Perhaps you've suffered the same sorts of things that Job has suffered, financial loss, Loss of loved ones, loss of health, terrible things in your life. And it just doesn't seem fair, especially when there are others around you in church or whatever who haven't suffered anything at all, it would seem. We talk regularly each week about God's love and grace and kindness to us, but it's a tough gig when you don't have the answers to those sorts of questions, isn't it? Especially if others around you in church seem like they're having a better time of it. Maybe you feel like Job in his speech in chapter 27, as God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. Maybe you feel that as well. And it's not just those of us who are suffering either, of course. That's the setting of the book. But Job's search for wisdom transcends suffering. Perhaps your life hasn't worked out the way you hoped, and it just doesn't feel like it's your fault. Or perhaps you're not suffering yourself, but all those unanswered questions rattle your confidence about God and about how he runs the world. After all, you don't have to be suffering to be tormented by those sorts of questions. If only God were to step in on the scene and explain himself to us all, we'd all turn up to that event at church, wouldn't we? Imagine that, the week of talks next week. On Friday, after we've done all the other ones, there's one where God comes up and he explains himself to us all. We'd all turn up, all our friends would turn up, we'd fill the building. Now, if you remember, in chapters one and two, when suffering first hit, Job did the right thing and refused to curse God for it. And as far as I can see, Job maintains his integrity throughout the rest of the book. He isn't cursing God in all of these speeches that we've been reading over the last couple of weeks. But he does want an explanation. And his challenge to God is, please explain yourself. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary, he says at the end of chapter 31. But before God steps on the scene in this book, which if you've read ahead, you know that he does, a new friend appears first who hasn't said anything yet, a young man called Elihu. And Elihu comes in with a different challenge for Job, which is that he doesn't think that Job has a big enough view of God. Let me read from chapter 32, verse 2 for us. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger 
He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned at anger also with Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Now this is sort of like the ironic twist in the story. The old supposedly wise men have gone round and round in circles in their discussion and made no progress, and Job has appealed to God to come and settle it. But rather than God, a young upstart pipes up and gives his opinion instead, except that the young man can see something clearly that the old wise men can't see. Elihu burns with anger at all four of them, interestingly, not just the three friends, but Job as well, because none of them can see what he thinks is the right way to look at it. The three friends are wrong, of course, because they failed to answer Job properly. But Job is also in the wrong because he's justified himself rather than God, verse 2. Which is perhaps a little bit of a surprise because by this point, we, the readers, were kind of on Job's side. We knew that the friends were wrong, but we were sort of there with Job and agreed with him in everything. But Elihu puts the brakes on. He thinks if Job has got to the point in his thinking where he's justifying himself rather than God, by which he means he's convinced that he's owed an explanation from God and that God is in the dock, so to speak, then something has gone wrong with him as well. He needs a bigger view of God. This is Elihu's point. If you remember, I used the illustration from the fifth Harry Potter book a couple of weeks ago where Harry is agonizing that Professor Dumbledore seems to be ignoring him through most of the book. He can't understand why Dumbledore won't turn up and just explain everything that seems to be going wrong in his life. And as the book goes on, the more he feels brewing resentment towards Dumbledore because he can't understand why he won't talk to him. But as soon as he starts insisting that Dumbledore has to come down from his office and explain himself, his friends begin to wonder if he's overstepping the mark a little bit. Does the legendary headmaster have to explain himself to the 15-year-old boy? Or is it enough simply to trust that he knows what he's doing and that there is an explanation? Now, Elihu is a bit of a confusing character because on the one hand, he provides a fresh insight that the others haven't quite got, but on the other hand, he sort of seems to say quite a lot of stuff that sounds kind of similar to what the friends say. The commentators go back and forth on this, and it's possible that there's a sort of a double irony going on that he can't actually see quite as clearly as he thinks he can. But there are at least some things that he says that seems to navigate past the pitfalls that Job and the other friends have fallen into. Because rather than fixating on whether God is being fair to Job or not, which is what Job and the friends have been doing, he comes at it from a different angle and asks Job to consider just how great God really is. Have a bigger view of God, he says. Have a flick forward to chapter, 32, uh, seven, chapter 37, and I'll read verses 14 to 20 for us. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind, can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. 
We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. You see, there's a danger in all of this debate that God is sort of reduced down to human size. And Elihu says we shouldn't do that wherever our thinking goes. Just think for a moment about the wondrous works of God, he says in verse 14. The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge, verse 16. Can you, like him, spread out the skies? And of course, the answer is no, we can't do that sort of thing. We can send aeroplanes into the sky, that's impressive, but we can't stretch out the sky itself. We can't make the heavenly canopy which the clouds ride through. That's far beyond human capability, but God can do that, and he has done that. And so Elihu asks in verse 19, well, teach us what we should say to him then. Teach us, can we draw up a case against God? Or are we too in the dark to be able to do that sort of thing? Could it be the case that we don't have the right vantage point to be able to make a case against God? Do you see what Elihu is hinting at? When we look at creation, the sky, for example, it tells us something about the greatness of the one who made it. It's so far beyond human capability. And therefore, God himself must be so far beyond human capability. In fact, it tells us that God is really in a completely different category from humans. He is the creator rather than one of the creatures. In which case, well, is it really right for Job to demand an answer from him? Can you do that with the one who's in a different category? At which point, God himself appears on the scene at the start of chapter 38. A couple of chapters ago, we were all ready for him to arrive, if you remember. We agreed with Job that he was owed an explanation. We were ready, ready to give God a piece of our minds. We would have called in Sue Gray to come and do an independent review of God's handling of the universe and asked him to justify himself. But now Elihu has sort of thrown in a note of caution. Are we really in a position to do that? There's a sense in which his speech has paved the way for God because it's kind of slightly put us on the back foot as we read through this. And actually that's quite helpful because God's answer to Job when he finally shows up is, well, I don't have to answer you. Is Job an open explanation from God? No, he's not, says God. And there are two speeches that God gives. Firstly, he shows him that he doesn't have the right vantage point to accuse God. And then secondly, he shows him that he doesn't have the strength to challenge him. Let's look at both of them in turn. Have a look at chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. We wanted God to turn up for chapters, but when he does, suddenly we realize how overpowering he is. He addresses Job from out of the whirlwind. Do you remember that there was that gale force wind that we all had a couple of months ago? We sort of looked out the window and thought, ah, it looks kind of fine. And then you went outside and a particularly strong bit came along and sort of went woof and knocked you off your feet. That's supposed to be the effect of God coming in and speaking now at this point in the book. 37 ch chapters of man's bluster. But when God appears, it's like enduring a whirlwind. And he says to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that's speaking to me as if they know everything? 
Let the Almighty answer me. That's what Job said at the end of chapter 31. But God has a different idea. You're the one who's going to be doing the answering, Job, and I'll ask the questions. Thank you very much. Now dress for action. Put on your armor. See if you can defend yourself against my questions. Do you see the twist in the narrative of the book? We were all ready for Job to put God in the dock, but when God turns up, suddenly the roles are reversed. And so God begins his long interrogation of Job. Question one, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse four, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. No? Okay, how about this one? Question two, on what were its bases sunk? Verse six, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You were there with the sons of God, weren't you, Job? So you'll know that one. You weren't there. Okay, then, well, how about this one, verse 12? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? You've been alive for a while, Job. Surely there's been at least one day when you commanded the morning to start and it all began. Really? Not one day? And so on and so on for question after question. Some of them perhaps with a touch of irony in what God is saying. Until finally in chapter 40 verse 1, God finishes and says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. To which Job replies, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. It seems that any who was on the right sort of lines, at least in this aspect, because God's point in all of this is to show Job that he just simply doesn't have the vantage point to question him. Just look at God's works in creation and everything that he has done. Job has no idea how the world really works. Not really. He wasn't there when God laid its foundations. He doesn't know how to tell the dawn to do its thing. And so on and so on. God is not required to explain himself to one who has no idea about the operation that he runs behind the scene to get the universe to run. But God hasn't finished yet. And so in verse 6, again, God answers out of the whirlwind. This time God asks Job if he has the strength to challenge him. Verse 9, have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? And he invites Job to consider two especially powerful creatures that he has made, Behemoth and Leviathan. Now, possibly we didn't cover this in our reading, so I'll sort of summarize it. We'll have a, look, a little bit of it, look at a little bit of it. But um, uh, possibly these are kind of real creatures of some kind, or possibly they're sort of symbolic creatures of some kind, and they represent kind of the most powerful of the land creatures and the most powerful of the sea creatures, something like that. Leviathan certainly appears on several other occasions throughout the Old Testament, representing a kind of a great, overwhelmingly powerful sea creature. Think of something like a a giant squid that might suck you down into the depths, that kind of thing. Not an inherently evil or malevolent 
creature. Sometimes Leviathan is used to represent a kind of a powerful enemy of some kind, but not always. In Psalm 104, for example, he's just simply a, a playful sea creature that God has made. And on this occasion, it is the might or power of Behemoth and Leviathan that God is drawing our attention to. These are spectacular, mighty creatures that God has made. Let me read from chapter, uh, uh, from verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut as closely as with a seal. Now, the point is not to pinpoint exactly what kind of creature that God is uh, describing here. The language is sort of hyperbolic and pictorial. It's not as if there's literally an animal somewhere which has sort of a metal back and can sneeze lightning bolts, you know, like it's some kind of um, massive Pokemon or something that's got sort of special lightning moves and so on. That's not the idea. In fact, it's almost as if these creatures are kind of an amalgamation of several of the most powerful land and sea creatures. But the point is that Job is not strong enough to take on creatures like this. Even in the created world, there are animals that overpower you if you are left in one-to-one -one combat with them. And here's the logic. If there are creatures in this world that are just so completely overwhelmingly powerful and that Job can never stand up to, well, how on earth does he think he's going to stand up to the one who made them? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? No. Even the creatures that God has made, such as Behemoth and Leviathan, are too overpowering, let, go, let alone God himself. God doesn't owe Job an explanation. Job has neither the vantage point nor the strength to challenge God. And I wonder, are you satisfied with God's answer? What do you think? This is the climax of the book. This is where all of the answers in the book are to be found. This is what it's been building up to. But are you happy with it? Does it wrap everything up neatly for you? It's possible that we're not quite happy with God, what God says here as his answer. Just think for a second how God could have responded to Job's questions for answers. He could have said, okay, Job, you've had quite a time of it. I'm sorry about that. Let me explain the debate that I had with Satan back in chapters one and two. In fact, here's the book. You can go back and read it of your own biography and it'll help you understand um, uh, what's going on and I'll tell you a little bit more about why that was so important. That would have been a legitimate answer that God could have given because we were given that insight at the start of the book as the readers. Or he could have said, listen, Job, let me explain the bigger picture in all of this. You're suffering now, but I have this great, fantastic plan to defeat all of the evils in the world. And it's just going to require patience and a few other things to get through. There's this wonderful salvation plan I have. I've got my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming further down the line. It's going to be fantastic. God could have said that as well. We know that that's true from the rest of the Bible. We may feel that both of those answers would have been more satisfying than the brief lesson that Job, God gives Job in natural history, looking at the world around him and Leviathan and Behemoth and so on. But do you see the problem with both of those answers? Because with either one, we would have to conclude that Job was right to demand that God explain himself to him. 
He demanded an explanation and God bowed to his will. God was forced into justifying himself. And if that happens, something very fundamental about the universe has gone wrong. If we ever get to the point where we think that we're in the judge's seat and that God is in the dock having to explain himself, something has gone wrong. And so the answer that God gives Job is, well, look at creation. It's far more complex than you understand. Look at Behemoth and Leviathan. They're much too powerful for you to handle. You are not the creator, Job. And therefore, you're not in the right position to challenge the creator. At which point, Job responds finally with what is the right response at the end of the book, which we know because God commends him for it. Let's read from chapter 42, verse 1. Just find it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you'll make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I uttered things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That's the realization that we're supposed to get to in all of this. That's the answer of the book. And it's supposed to be a very challenging answer because it's precisely when we go through acute suffering that we feel that we are most owed an explanation from God for it all. Those of you who faced proper suffering, you feel like you're owed an explanation from God. But the point of the book of Job is to drive us to the right kind of humility before God. We're not in the position to challenge him about the universe and how he operates it. He doesn't owe anybody an explanation, no matter how much of a grievance we feel. And that may be hard for us to hear. In fact, it may be something that we want to discuss with others afterwards and pray about, perhaps. But I do think that that is the point of the book. It's a fundamental Bible lesson that we need to learn to put God in his proper place. That's a conclusion that Job rightly comes to at the end of the book. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I see you clearly, God. And I despise myself, Job says. That is, I regret that I demanded of you to hold yourself to account. I repent of that presumption. Now, of course, God isn't saying this to make the point that he is some sort of detached dictator of some kind, you know, who dishes out what he, you know, punishment here and there, does what he likes, and nobody challenges him. And neither is he lashing out at Job angrily, I don't think. His speeches are forceful, certainly, but, but their purpose isn't to crush Job in all of this. He does care for Job. He cares for Job deeply. Remember, all the way back at the start, God said that he was delighted with Job and his uprightness in the council when all the sons of God were there. And I think that's the point that we're supposed to take away from the bit that we heard read at the end of the book, where God restores all Job's fortunes at the end as well. That's not a promise that God will do that to everybody who faces suffering or anything like that. But it does illustrate God's care and his goodness he does care for Job in all of this. And of course, we can go through the rest of the Bible to know more about the goodness of God. He does have a plan to deal with evil and suffering. He has sent us the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have confidence that this broken world is not all that there is. 
But this book is dealing with a more fundamental point before we get to all of that. Before we even think that we ought to trust God, though that's an obvious implication, it's raising the question of how big our view of God really is. Is it big enough? Do we have God in his proper place? So what should we think then when suffering hits? What should we think? Those of us who are suffering now, or those of us who aren't, but need to prepare for it in the future, which basically covers all of us, what should we think so that we don't become bitter or hardened towards God? He's still good. He's still powerful. He's still gracious, kind, everything that we learn from the rest of Scripture. He still has a wonderful plan for our world, a wonderful great plan. Many of us have been on the weekend away this weekend and learning of the wonderful future resurrection that God has. All of those things are true. But the lesson of the book of Job is that we need to begin with humility. God doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does. He's not an MP who can be called up on his actions. He's a great and vast and overwhelming God. A God who rules the universe, who made Behemoth and Leviathan. And we have to be very careful if we ever think that he needs to justify himself to us. Let's pray to finish. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have that right humility before you and understand that you are God and this is your world and you don't owe us an explanation for what you do. Even, Father, when we are going through the worst kind of suffering, we pray that you would give us the strength to respond like Job does at the end of the book and not to call you to account for what you do. We thank you, Father, that this is not all that we know about you in the, book as, of the, in, in the Bible as well and that we know that you do have a wonderful salvation plan for us in which we can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.